And on this third Sunday after Easter, the lesson is taken from the first letter of St. Peter Apostle. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims to refrain yourselves from carnal desires, which war against the soul, having your conversation good among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by the good works which they shall behold in you, glorify God in the day of visitation. Be ye subject, therefore, to every human creature for God's sake, whether it be to the king as excelling, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of the good. For so is the will of God that by doing well you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not as making liberty a cloak for malice, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thanksworthy in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please rise for the Holy Gospel, which is taken from that of St. John. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, A little while, and now you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said one to another, What is this that he saith to us, A little while, and you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father? They said, Therefore, What is this that he saith, A little while? We know not what he speaketh. And Jesus knew that they had a mind to ask him, and he said to them, Of this do you inquire among yourselves, because I said, A little while, and you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me. Amen, amen, I say to you that you shall lament and weep, but the world shall rejoice. And you shall be made sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But when she hath brought forth a child, she remembereth no more the anguish, for joy that a man is born into the world. So also you now indeed have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man shall take from you. Thus far the words of this Sunday's Holy Gospel. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Ave Maria Purissima. So on this third Sunday after Easter, contemplating the resurrection of Christ and its consequences for our Christian life. That is, we should be able to uh, imitate the resurrection of Christ, given that we participate in it. Okay? And we notice that Christ came not only to save our soul, but also our body. He came to save the whole man. Okay? And we see in his risen humanity that he wishes even to glorify our, our corporeal bodies uh, in heaven, where they will be partakers of that supernatural and divine joy, which will overflow even unto our body. And hence, we, we reflect today on the dignity of our body, very different from our culture which, although it exaggerates the body as if it were the only aspect of man, through materialism and sensualism, at the same time it despises it, as it becomes in the end just a boring toy which passes away. Hence our neo-pagan culture of uh, how they even speak of the, of the body, and for example, in the, those in favor of infanticide, that it's my body, I'll do with it as I please, which they graffiti with tattoos and piercings and and uh, so much despise it as they adore it. How different is our perspective, where we see that our body is a temple of God, which was christened and consecrated 
and holy baptism with the the holy water and the sacred chrism, again a confirmation and as so many times received, the life-giving body and precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in holy communion. We see then that our body in this, according to this, our Christian vocation to imitate, united with Christ, the the, the resurrected Christ, that uh, it is called to be most pure. And that purity is a positive thing, okay? Different from the world's perspective that views purity as simply the lack of a knowledge or a certain experience. Rather, it's a virtue, which is a power within the soul, which makes it strong. It says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And that's made possible even in this life, as it were, in, in, in a prelude to that divine vision, whereby we can see God in our soul and in the soul of others, seeing ourselves and our fellow man from that spiritual perspective, from a God's eye view. And so we see that, uh, likewise, the vocation of our body and holy matrimony, that God made them male and female, he created them, making them to his own image and likeness, that even in the holy union of matrimony, that their bodies will reflect in a certain sense, as led by their spirits and not by simple base impulse, but will reflect even the divine fecundity, that in God, uh, the third person, the Holy Ghost, proceeds as a love between the other two persons. And that uh, it's called to reflect, likewise, the love of Christ for his church. As St. Paul explains this great mystery, sacrament of marriage, in his fifth uh, chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. And so we see, according to our Christian vocation, that our body and this marital union has a certain divine dignity. Okay? But <clears throat> and how much, how different the world's view is of that. And if we understand how great and how noble and beautiful it is, we'll understand how grave the sins of impurity are, which seek to profane this temple of God, which we are. St. Thomas notes that even though they are not the most grave sins in comparison with, for example, hatred of God or envy being spiritual sins, they have a greater malice. (laughs) Nevertheless, they are grave and they are the most shameful because man called to be amongst the angels of God in heaven feels himself subject to that which is most base and low in his nature. And so he says they, in that sense, they are the most shameful and by which man degrades himself to the level of a beast. Or as St. Thomas remarks, if it treats of unnatural vice or sins against nature of impurity, then even worse than a beast. And so we can see why the devil, who bears his great envy towards men, uh, towards man who's called to replace him in heaven, the, the, the thrones, the seats which the angels, the fallen angels have uh, relinquished, doesn't want us to arrive there. He wants us to live more like beasts than like angels. Okay? Hence uh, how he presents himself as the beast, even though he is as such a pure spirit. And this is the battleground. We have not only the devil to worry about to tempt us, but more still, uh, the flesh and the world. As St. Paul describes that he sees, discovers another mem- a law within his members that goes against his spirit which he must mortify and bring into subjection, lest, uh, lest he become a castaway. And likewise the world, which is <clears throat> out to get us. I'll give you a few quotes in, in a moment. So that's the battleground. How are we doing, if we ask ourselves? 
Our Lady of Fatima, over, just over 100 years ago, showed a vision of hell to the holy shepherds, showing them that souls were falling like rain into hell, and principally because of sins of the flesh. And so, uh, <clears throat> we also should reflect on the great social harm that the sin of impurity costs, causes against the argument of one who might say, well, I have a right to my own eternal damnation. I can go to hell if I like to. It doesn't affect anybody else. Wherefore, there should be no civil laws against spreading impurity or committing adultery, etc. We recall what the saints, <clears throat> the greatest of psychologists, tell us, uh, those who truly knew the soul, that lust is a capital vice. Being capital, from head, it's, it spawns other consequences or daughters, we say, uh, other sins as a consequence, which are, St. Thomas sums up as blindness of mind, thoughtlessness or inconsideration, <clears throat> inconstancy, rashness or precipitation in judgment and actions, self-love, hatred of God, <coughs> who prohibits that which the lustful man most loves, seventh, a disordered love of this passing world, and eighth, a, uh, an abhorrence of despair or despair of a future world. Now tell me, if a father of a family, if a civil leader is blinded by thoughtlessness, inconstancy, self-love, hatred of God, is that not going to have an impact on the rest of society? Presuming that he's not so absorbed in self-love, he actually tries to form a family or serve the common good? Of course, we can see in it that a destruction of the society <clears throat> Even the grave sin of abortion, the slaughtering of the innocents, how often, in my own pro-life experience, is it simply a consequence of somebody wanting to live a disordered life according to the flesh and cannot accept the inconvenience of having a child. St. Thomas also notes that it's one of the principal causes of the loss of faith, corrupting the faith not in the intellect by heresy, but in the heart by perverse desire. Note that, as St. Thomas says, the will commands the act of faith because it implies, it requires that we want to know God, that we want to grow closer to him. And if one's God is one's belly, they have no interest in knowing God or spiritual things. Hence, it's part of the tactic of cultural Marxism. You can read about the, that phenomena, but an attack of communism to corrupt Christian society in the West especially by first inundating a culture with drugs and pornography. If people live according to their flesh, they will lose their spiritual values, they will lose their Christian faith. <clears throat> and likewise, it uh, extends to all the fashions of our day as well. Okay? As we can hear from the same enemies of the church and their plot to, to corrupt us. First, we all know Our Lady of Fatima said to Saint Jacinta, that certain fashions would be introduced that will offend our Lord very much, and that people who serve God should not follow current fashion trends, that the church has no fashions, that our Lord is always the same. And it's attributed to an international review of uh, Freemasonry in 1928, just 10 years after <clears throat> the apparition of Our Lady at Fatima, which says that in terms of their plot to destroy Christian society, religion does not fear the dagger's point, but it can vanish under corruption. Let us not grow tired of corruption. We may use as a pretext, such as sport, hygiene, health resorts. It is necessary to corrupt that our boys and girls practice nudism in dress. 
To avoid too much reaction, one would have to progress in a methodical manner. First, undress up to the elbow, then up to the knee, then arms and legs completely uncovered. Later, the upper part of the chest, the shoulders, etc., etc. Can you imagine you know, such a <clears throat> phenomena occurring as the world prepares itself for Olympic pole dancing? You know? And so, the church uh, reminds us, and I very much recommend uh, this book by Colleen Hammond, a uh, personal friend of mine, Dressing with Dignity. She was uh, a model and of a somewhat more worldly orientation. Had a great conversion and writes this book uh, about dressing with dignity, how to recover the sense of feminine dignity, calling, keeping in mind that without a lady, there will be no gentleman, okay? That she is, like our most holy lady, the inspiration <clears throat> for a Catholic gentleman. And she does a wonderful job in giving you all the quotes of saints and popes so that we can have perspective in our age, which is, which is falling to, uh, to ruin. You can find, for example, references, if you're looking for them, of what the magisterium recommends in terms of a lady's dress. I'm mentioning, for example, that it shouldn't be a low-cut blouse, that skirt should go below the knees, that at, uh, keeping herself covered, avoiding transparent or super tight material, that she'll never, she won't be a proximate occasion of sin. Okay? And debate what you want about certain details and circumstances. Wouldn't it be nice to appear before God on the last day saying, I simply followed what the church recommended, and it won't be your fault. It will judge Pope Pius XI, okay, in place of you. But insofar as it provides a near occasion of sin, when it's uh, designed to be provocative in a, a disordered way, the church tells us we must prefer the spiritual welfare of our neighbor to our bodily comfort. If a certain kind of dress constitutes a grave and proximate occasion of sin and endangers the salvation of your soul and others, it is your duty to give it up, okay? And we'll talk about more details uh, in our respective talks with the, with the men and with the ladies, young adults, as the psychology is very different, as I've often observed, okay, between men and women. <clears throat> I will only say that men, fathers, it is your solemn duty, okay? I don't need to explain to you how a man, uh, how a man thinks, uh, male psychology, okay? You know it very well. And I know that your daughters will always be your little girls, but when they become little women, it's your grave duty to Make sure they are dressed appropriately, according to their dignity, and to teach them, especially the principles of modesty. Here's a quote from uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church of 1992. It has a wonderful a little summary of these principles, saying, purity requires modesty, an integral part of temperance. Modesty protects the intimate center of the person. It means refusing to unveil what should remain hidden. It is ordered to chastity to whose sensitivity it bears witness. It guides how one looks at others and behaves towards them in conformity with the dignity of persons and their solidarity. Modesty protects the mystery of persons and their love. Modesty is decency. It inspires one's choice of clothing. Modesty inspires a way of life which makes it possible to resist the allurements of fashion and prevailing ideologies. The form taken by modesty vary from one culture to another. Everywhere, however, modesty exists as an intuition of the spiritual dignity proper to man. It is born with the awakening consciousness of being a subject. Teaching modesty to children and adolescents means awakening in them respect for the human person. And I would add especially teaching them that their body is sacred, okay? It's not that it's bad or evil, but that it's uh, so noble and sacred, okay? And this is how we explain, this is what our traditional liturgy should inspire in us as well. From our cult comes our culture, okay? 
And if this were our church, uh, we would have a, a veil over the tabernacle, as is traditionally done, as you see a veil today over the chalice on the altar. Okay? What does that signify? That that which is veiled is sacred. It's a mystery. It's not to be seen as just any other thing, but something to be revered and respected. So too, imitating that, when ladies ask, well, why do you wear that veil uh, uh, on your head when you come to Mass? It's the same reason. And likewise, in dressing with dignity and elegant uh, manner, is to say what is behind uh, this, uh, this veil is a sacred mystery to be respected and loved. No? Which is what every woman is looking for. Let's take our inspiration from Blessed Virgin Mary and our, and our, and our traditional liturgy. And in general, it's, uh, it's a point for everyone to reflect on, okay? If, we, if you read St. Thomas's treatise there on modesty, you'll notice not just about avoiding being an occasion of sin. It's about a whole manner of comportment by which we express our dignity as sons of God, okay? It's something that applies to men in this day as well. Everybody is way too relaxed. I'm not just referring to Southern Florida either, okay? But a whole lack of formality. They sell, I saw the other day, uh, ad for... Ripped jeans, new, on sale. You know, does this express our dignity as sons of God? And hence, if we go back and look at what Christian customs were when Christ was king of society, when that Catholic spirit pervaded <clears throat> our lives and homes, then we will see quite a difference. And we can start to work towards restoring what we have lost. Because Pope Pius XII challenges us, saying that we often used to, we, it is often said with a kind of passive resignation that fashion expresses the manners of a people. But it would be more accurate and more useful to say that it expresses the will, the moral decision that a nation intends to take, either to be shipwrecked in, in lustfulness or libertinism, or to maintain itself on that level for which religion and civilization has destined it. And hence, uh, <clears throat> we need to do more than just the minimum, okay? Remember the poem of the Second Coming, right? Of uh, the great poet, uh, the, great, the great poem of uh, Yeats that things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Okay? We're called to lead the culture. What does St. Peter tell us today? We're pilgrims, sojourners, strangers. This is not our house. We're just passing through here. We're trying to take as many souls to heaven as we can by our word and by our example. Okay? We're the leaders. Right? We're, not, we're not here to follow the world. We're here to change the world and conform it to Christ. And in terms of remedies to, uh, to establish this great uh, virtue of purity in the soul, just recall, again, that a, that a virtue is a good habit, a vice is a bad habit, okay? And it's just a question of changing your habits, habitually dedicating yourself to more penance, so as to mortify the flesh, more spiritual works and, and prayer, so as to increase spiritual desires, okay? And if you persevere, as the scripture tells us, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist your passions, and they will eventually obey, right? It's like raising a three-year-old, okay? You just keep insisting, and slowly but surely, good habits are formed, okay? And so, <clears throat> uh, what to recommend then, of course, any penance. Say that it d does you uh, some sort of harm to your body, 
and you're free to do it. Just as simply, we, we praise athletes, right, who make all sorts of sacrifices to gain some yellow rock, right? So what do we do for our eternal salvation? And St. Paul says, I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest having preached to others, I myself become a castaway. Okay, more penance. The holy minute, this is often recommended. Avoiding especially idleness, which is the devil's workshop. Okay, you wake up, you have one minute to get up and say your prayers. And St. Thomas More reflects that our mind cannot be um, empty, okay? It always has something in it. So we just have to change the conversation, keep it focused on something good and holy. St. Jerome said we should fall asleep with a, with a Bible in our hands, okay? Do something, whether holy or just uh, healthy and good, to occupy your mind, because unoccupied it cannot be, okay? Frequent the sacraments. Uh, confession is not only to uh, erase, to wash out mortal sins, also venial sins, and also to increase grace. And if one's going through a difficult stage in this battle uh, for purity, you should go to confession. You can go to confession every week or even more frequently, as every confession sincerely made with a firm purpose of resolution will increase grace in the soul. Okay? It's like taking your daily vitamins. Okay? Likewise, more prayer. We say in Spanish, uh, dime con quien andas y te daré quien eres. Tell me who you hang out with and I'll tell you who you are. Okay? Are you spending more time reading the saints or watching television? Well, there's the solution. Spend more time with the saints and you'll start to feel and think like they do. Uh, likewise, uh, avoiding, and you'll read about saints who, who likewise struggled with impurity, like St. Augustine. Right, who had lived a wayward life and lived uh, with a woman outside of marriage, had a kid. St. Gabriel the Sorrowful Virgin, who um, was very popular with the young ladies at, at parties and twice promised to God he would change his life and twice broke his promise. Okay? But he becomes a saint. And key to his conversion, devotion to Our Lady. One day in a procession he saw this image of Our Lady of Sorrows which pierced his heart. It changed him completely. And he had to do hard work as a novice of the, of the Passionists, doing much prayer and penance, and died young, uh, maybe 27 years of age, thereabouts. But died a saint, so it's possible. It's the same St. Augustine, who would say afterwards, love God and do as you please, because now my pleasure, my want, my desire is what pleases God, okay? And so we have uh, like, a devotion to Our Lady, uh, receiving the most blessed sacrament with frequency, the bread of angels, which will make us more pure, okay? The practice of the three Hail Marys every morning, every night, that sincere intention in honor of Our Lady's uh, thrice holy virginity to remain pure every day, giving her thanks uh, with three Hail Marys then once again at night, okay? We have, this is what we're meditating, right? In this, in this Paschal time, Christ has risen, okay? That resurrection, that salvation extends to, through his body to ours. If only we imitate him, we follow uh, him in his triumph over sin and death. We have the victory guaranteed. If only we put into practice uh, the grace that he gives us. And he who is within us is stronger than he who is without. For blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.